coming November 15th, a brand new season of That's What She Did podcast. We'll be bringing you 10 inspiring women you probably don't already know. On this new season of the podcast, we are shining a light on women that are at the intersection of activism and storytelling. They're fearlessly using their art, expression, and personal narratives to change the world. You're going to hear from actors and playwrights, poets and artists, filmmakers and authors. There are women unapologetically challenging the status quo, and you need to hear their stories. Prepare to be inspired. This season, our fourth, is going to be pure fire, and you don't want to miss this. Find it wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, that's what she did podcast.com. Hey there, friends. Welcome back to another episode of That's What She Did Podcast. You're listening to season four, episode eight. Before we get started, a couple of quick reminders. This is the eighth episode this season. That means there are only two left. That's right, two. I've been loving every episode. I hope you love it as much as I do. But if you've been listening to this show for a while, then you know that I only create this show at audience request. So if you want this show back for another season in March for season five, then I need to hear from you. It's really simple. All you have to do is either send me an email to that's what she did podcast at gmail.com and say, hey, bring the show back for another season or hit me up on social media. We hang out the most on Instagram. So send me a DM, leave me a comment. Let me know. Do you want this show back? for another season when we wrap in just two weeks from now? You gotta let me know. That's how we've done it every single season, is if you want this show back, I ask you and you tell me. And while you're at it, don't forget to send me a selfie of wherever you listen to this show, whether it be in the car, walking your dog, cleaning your house, whatever the thing is that you do, take a selfie, Put it on the Instagram and tag us at That's What She Did Podcast. And while you're at it, let us know if you want this show back for another season. I'd love to give you a shout out and feature you on the page. And thank you personally for being a listener to this show. Now, let's get started with this week's guest. I have for you Mickey Kendall. She's a writer, historian, diversity consultant who writes about intersectionality, policing, gender, sexual assault, and other current events. Mickey's work can be found in publications like The Guardian, Washington Post, Ebony, Essence, and Salon, among many others. She also happens to be a writer of graphic novels, and her latest work called Amazon's Abolitionists and Activists is a graphic novel that illuminates the stories of notable women throughout history, from queens and freedom fighters to warriors and spies. I read it. I thought it was delightful. I really enjoyed it. And I'm excited to bring her here to you this week so we can continue this discussion around storytelling and activists and how that works specifically in a graphic novel. Until speaking to Mickey, I never considered comic books as a form of storytelling that intersects with activism or advocacy of any type. So I'm excited to explore this topic a little more with you all. Let's go ahead and jump in. (laughs) All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of That's What She Did podcast. I have Mickey Kendall on with us right now to talk about 
put feminism, talk about her latest graphic novel, Amazon's Abolitionist and Activist. And we're just going to jump in. I'm excited about this conversation. So let's do it. Welcome to the show, Mickey. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. You are such a perfect fit for this episode. So I have to personally thank your, I think it was your publicist or your PR person. Somebody that contacted me was like, you should have Mickey on the show. And I was like, absolutely. I was familiar with you prior to this because I know you did the whole hashtag solidarity is for white women and it was like a thing. So as soon as your person came to me and said your name, I was like, I know that name. How do I know that name? And I went back through and and then I was like, oh yeah, hashtag solidarity is for white women. And so I was excited to have you. It's a perfect fit for this season around activism and storytelling and women that are at the intersection of that. So I'm excited to talk about how you're doing that. Let's actually start with your novel because that's sort of, it just dropped a couple days ago on November 5th and we'll start there and then we'll just get into all the things. How's that? Sounds perfect. Okay. So tell us about Amazon's Abolitionists and Activists. So Amazon's Abolitionists and Activists is a nonfiction graphic novel. So it's a lot of facts wrapped up in a little bit of science fiction and a lot of pretty pictures. And one of the reasons I I wrote it this way is because most of the time when we're teaching history, A, we make it really boring, right? A lot of us learn things like the Battle of Hastings in 1066 for a test. We don't know why we know that. We don't really remember what that was about or why it's relevant, but we had to learn it at some point in high school. And then it's one of those things that sort of sticks in the back of your brain and you never remember why. And the reason you don't is because the way we teach history from K to 12 is actually really boring. And then you don't have to take history after that. And also the history we teach between kindergarten and the end of high school is often not an accurate one. It erases women, it erases people of color, it erases women of color in particular. And you end up coming away feeling like only white men ever did much with a handful of select brown people and maybe five or six women and everything else is white men. And so then you aren't that interested in history. Yeah. History is interested in you, though. Oh, what do you mean by that? I mean that the world as we know it is shaped by our actions. And there's an old saying, those who fail to remember their history are doomed to repeat it, right? Well, we don't really talk about it, but most people don't really learn their history. So it's really easy to come away from your average education. And this isn't even a public school or private school thing. Your average education in the U.S. and outside the U.S., We don't necessarily hear anything about Black people in America until we get to Martin Luther King. So it kind of ends up working like, oh, slavery ended, Black people went into the closet, and then they reappeared in time for the 1960s, because we don't really cover Jim Crow, except as a passing sentence, right? Right. You have people who think that all of the indigenous American nations are gone because they learn about colonization and genocide, they don't learn anything after that, and they don't learn about the resistance that was going on during that necessarily. What we think we know about history, we learn from TV, from movies, and that's usually false. It's not always false, but 90% or so is a heavily dramatic license sort of a structure. Sure. And so then we think, oh, well, I can't affect anything. I've had no impact. People like me don't have an impact. And it's not even necessarily a conscious idea But then when you get to the point where like right now with what's happening in America with the chief Cheeto in charge and some other folks, (laughs) 
we think it, there's a sense of hopelessness that can permeate because you think mm-hmm. no one can, can stop this train. Well, actually, lots of people have stopped these trains. This has happened before. You just didn't learn about it. And now that you're living it, you don't necessarily understand how to respond to it. So why graphic novel format? Because when I, I started to read, I was like, well, of course, I'm going to check it out. And I, I thought... I'm not into graphic novels. I'll skim it. And so I started to skim it. Full transparency, I did. Like I started flipping through. And then I got, I don't know, maybe halfway. And I you know, started reading a little deeper. And I was like, oh, I, I missed a lot. And so I went back to the beginning and I started again. I think it being a graphic novel format automatically said to me, oh, like this is for a kid. Like this is mostly for teenagers. But as I was reading it, I thought it was really thoughtfully done particularly like the women that you chose to highlight. And so talk like me, you know, talk us through that. Why graphic novel? Why this format? Who is it for exactly? So it's actually for everyone. It's the place in my head anyway, where people who are into graphic novels and people who are not into graphic novels can meet. One of the things to know about Americans, not just about Americans, is that many people read at a seventh to 10th grade level. It is not necessarily that they're bad readers, that they're not interested in reading, that they can't learn, but that for the way they learn, that lack of visual cues makes reading off-putting, right? That wall of text, black letters, white page, for a lot of people, it just gets tedious, right? Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean that they don't want to learn. It just means that their learning style might be visual, it might be auditory. There are a lot of better ways sometimes to teach. Last night, I had an event at Women and Children First Books here in Chicago. And a woman who was probably in her late 50s came up to me and said, this is so good for me because I'm, I have ADD. It's harder for me to pay attention. So I read a lot of graphic novels because then it, the pictures grab my attention and they keep me focused. And so I wanted this to be for people who weren't necessarily good readers but wanted to learn, wanted it to be for kids who frankly, have been learning history in a way that makes them think it's not for them and not about them. I wanted it to be for people like you who might think, oh, this is like a comic book thing and I'm not going to get into it because there comes a point where you start to think, wait, this is really pretty. If nothing else, the pictures are going to grab your eye and you're going to read the words. You're going to learn a bunch of stuff and you're going to do just exactly, you did exactly what I want people to do, to go back and be like, wait, what did I miss? Mm-hmm. What am I looking at? And there, this is designed to be something people will want to read more than once. I put a lot of information into it. I am totally aware that it's a lot of information. I don't expect anyone to remember everything they see the first time. I want people to want to read it again. Right. To want to go back and look up something. To want to read someone's name and look at the index and be like, I'm going to Google that person. I find her curious. I find her fascinating. Right. I don't care what grabs your attention as long as your attention is grabbed and you're now paying attention to history. No, I thought it was really thoughtful and I'm dyslexic, right? I'm on the dyslexia scale. I'm not like on the I'm on the lower end of the spectrum. And I thought and I even like to read and you know it's, it's a challenge for me sometimes, but I get it done. And as I was finishing it, the thought I honestly had was like, "Huh, maybe I should have been reading graphic novels this whole time because I felt like I learned a lot and it wasn't hard for me. Like I didn't have to go back and keep reread a lot of the passages so that I could comprehend what I had just read. It kind of, I thought it went very thoughtfully through history 
you know, and it wasn't confusing about the timeline, which I don't know if it's just me or if it's because I am dyslexic. Timelines are really difficult for me to follow if they're not very step by step. It's actually not just a you thing. Okay. So this is another fault in the way we teach history. Martin Luther King and Anne Frank were born the same year. They would have been, had she lived, existing in the world and doing things at the same time, mm -hmm. right? But most people don't realize that because the way we teach history is we teach you about Anne Frank and her life and her death. We skip everything about Martin Luther King's youth, just about, except maybe a couple of facts if it happens to come up. And by the time we meet him in a classroom, he's in his 30s. And you don't think about when he was born because we really don't talk about that. We don't think about the fact that history happens at the same time in multiple places, that these events are happening in, in a context, of, a global context. And so what ends up happening is that you divorce them, not even intentionally in your head from each other, but then when people start talking to you about it, it's difficult to remember because you've been taught them in separate chunks, not as an interconnected web of the world. But this happens in Germany and it's in the past, and this happens in America, and it's you know a different part of the past and never the twain shall meet. Mm -hmm. They actually did overlap, you just have not been taught to think of history that way. I have ADD, so I always think of things happening at the same time. But I started to realize relatively recently that the way my brain maps things is not necessarily the way that I was taught to map things. It's a coping skill I figured out because like a lot of girls with ADD, no one figured out I had ADD. Right. So until I was an adult. So I had to figure out how to retain all of this information at the same time. Similarly, no one just thought I had dyslexia. I didn't know I had dyslexia until I was maybe a semester away from graduating from college. That's how far I got before any, before one person, one professor was like, have you ever considered that you might be dyslexic? I didn't even know what it was. <laughs> so, so like you, I have all these coping mechanisms. And in reading it, I noticed that there was this flow. Like it felt natural. I didn't feel like I was being forced to switch between timelines and try to piece it together in my head. So I thought it, again, I thought it was really thoughtfully done in the way it all flowed together. I thought it was really thoughtfully done in the way you selected the characters that would be introduced and their impact. I, because of the way that we are taught history and socialized in this country, to your earlier point, I think that we absolutely are taught to believe that white people did everything. And there was Martin Luther King, and there was Rosa Parks, and there was Malcolm X, and there were a few other people that you sort of kind of hear about on the periphery. And then there was Barack Obama, and then that was it. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. But you go through and you're, you have a global approach to all of these women that most people may have never, ever heard of and the impact that they had globally, not only in their, their local sphere. And I thought that that was really impactful and intentional because we are not taught that. And so I went into it almost expecting to see like a lot of white women and... <laughs> And I was a little bit surprised, happily surprised that there weren't a lot of white women. And then some of the women that you highlight, you're like, by the way, she did X, Y, and Z that you probably didn't learn about and is not so as great as you thought it was. Well, the other thing I, I wanted to sort of lay out is the history is messy, mm -hmm. right? So we don't have, everyone is a villain, a victor, a victim. No human ever is a monofocused creature who never does anything wrong or only does 
bad things. But it's also really important to understand that in terms of the way that we sort of valorize the past, we tend to erase the human, which also makes people feel like they can't do anything because those people were legends. That person was on this pedestal or that person was really awful. Well, actually, that's in all of us. And then because we do tend to show a lot of white women in terms of any real information about women. And there's not a lot about women in the way that we're taught history in the first place. You have a lot of people who are not seeing a reflection of themselves or not seeing a way to become who they might want to be, who don't necessarily understand how we got to where we are, right? Because we didn't just get here by accident. When we're talking about colonization, yes, Columbus, but also Queen Isabella. When we're talking about not just what happened here, but what was happening around the world. When we're talking about education, right? What we think of as a European education and European institutions as being the oldest. Well, Al-Qurain predates all of them, but a woman founded it and we sort of pretend it's not still there and running, but it's there. You, you can go, you can visit it right now. So that's one of the things I also kind of wanted to highlight is that women contributed so much to the world. Sometimes someone else got the credit for what they did, but without this 51% of the global population in various places at various times, we wouldn't be where we are now. What is the impact you hope that this novel has? I'm hoping that it changes for at least the people who are willing to interrogate this, the way not only that we teach history to kids, but also how accessible we make learning in general. I actually honestly think that in terms of texts and textbooks, nonfiction graphics have a really great opportunity to bridge that gap for people who are dyslexic, who may struggle with paying attention, with staying focused, that kind of a thing. Because I'll be honest, even I can think of many a meeting as an adult, we're just looking at the slides and there are no pictures. Mm -hmm. My brain has tuned out, gone down the street, and is busy imagining anything else because I can't just stare at for an hour, much less six hours, kids are in school. Right. We have a population in America and in most countries that don't get advanced educations. They go through high school level, maybe trade school, a couple years of college to get to their job, but we've removed the opportunity to be educated before they ever get to a point where they could be taught these things in a way that would be engaging. History classes in college, depending on the instructor granted, but often fascinating. You get really into them, you get very excited, you get to discuss a lot, but you never got that chance when education was free. Mickey, through your career, you are, you're called a social commentator, <laughs> a writer, a storyteller, all of these things. I think what you do is activism. Do you consider yourself an activist? I think everyone, to some degree, that has something they're passionate about is an activist. What I don't consider, I'm not an organizer. Mm -hmm. Never ever say that I am an organizer. I know organizers, I appreciate them and the fact that they're willing to talk to multiple people at the same time and sort of navigate that. I think that I advocate really well and if that is also activism, cool. Sometimes getting the work done is really about how passionate am I? How many hours am I gonna put in? Am I gonna keep pushing even when it seems like this is not going to work? I think that's the activism and to some degree we all engage in, hopefully we all engage in for something we care about. Do you think that story brings something particularly impactful or useful to advocacy and activism? I think it has, story helps people pay attention, helps people feel like they're involved, 
Mm-hmm. Like they have a stake. It's really difficult when someone is just spitting facts at you, like a list of facts. It can sound like a grocery list almost in your head. It's really difficult to feel a commitment, to feel engaged, to feel like you're attached. When you have a narrative, when the story has been humanized, when the, when the cause has been humanized, it's easier for people to care. I know someone will say, well, you shouldn't need these things to care. Well, unfortunately, humans are humans, and sometimes they do need a, a human peg to latch on to, mm-hmm. Right. One of the reasons we're now finally talking about climate change is because for years, climate change narratives were always this sort of ambiguous, this is bad for the earth. We're going to save the earth. And the earth is a nebulous concept to a lot of people. But when they tied it to these nations, these kids, these villages are going to be destroyed. And here are images of the human cost of climate change. Then people said, oh, oh, we have to do something. We have to actually act. Okay, not enough people because some folks are not great humans, but certainly more people now are willing to do something because they can see through the stories that this is having a real and meaningful impact and isn't a nebulous concept. Because it kind of goes back to the same thing I, I said before. We all remember that the Battle of Hastings was in 1066 for some reason. We don't know what Battle of Hastings means. We don't remember why 1066 would even begin to matter. But we had to learn it for a test at some point in grammar school or high school, maybe early college, right? You don't retain anything else about it. You're not going to retain anything. It's not going to motivate you to do anything. To some degree, even when we're talking about right now, racism and sexism in America, one of the reasons we've sort of seen a little bit of a change is because now with the advent of social media, It's not a thing that happens to a nebulous other somewhere over there. It's a thing that we see on video, Mm -hmm. right? The conversations about police brutality are still not great, but the tone has shifted as we see more videos, as we see more stories about the impact of that kind of violence. And so I think the story is the most important. Earlier, you sort of jokingly called yourself a troublemaker. (laughs) And I love that. That's why I made a specific space for rebels on this show. But is being a troublemaker, I mean, is that what, is that sort of a driving force for you in the, in your particular brand of activism or advocacy? Is it to stir the pot? Being a troublemaker is basically a requirement to make anything happen. The status quo doesn't like to be changed. Mm -hmm. Comfortable people don't necessarily want to give up even a crumb of their comfort for someone else to have what they have. And so I think that sometimes the only people who get things done, not sometimes, almost exclusively, the only people who get things done who make change happen are troublemakers. No one has ever gotten more rights by asking politely and then waiting quietly in a corner for the things to change. When we think of activists, when we think of organizers, they're almost universally labeled as troublemakers at the time. Only later do we see them suddenly lauded for what they did, right? If you go back and you look at what was written about Martin Luther King when he was actually marching, what was said about Rosa Parks when she actually did that sit in all of these things, Fannie Hamer, all of these people, people hated them. They called them all kinds of names. They called them troublemakers. They called them, you know, CIA operatives and Russian plants and all kinds of things. And actually what was happening was that they looked at the status quo and they said, this is really unfair and we have to do something about it. And I think making trouble, sure, you shouldn't make trouble just to make trouble, but I think generally speaking, there's a good kind of trouble to make. 
Is that what the hashtag solidarity is for white women was about? Was it your way of making trouble around inclusivity, intersectionality? What was it? So it started out, I was annoyed and I got mad. (laughs) Full disclosure, I'm angry, sometimes things happen. And the hashtag really started, to be honest, as a response to the narrative that white women couldn't have done anything about a predatory white male who called himself a feminist because they were protecting their communities. They couldn't have done anything about someone who was explicitly and specifically targeting women of color over and over again. Mm -hmm. Even after he admitted that he had been targeting them and had gone after them, he got on Twitter, he said all of this, they were still saying, well, I had to stand in solidarity with my community. Well, you can't say you're a feminist and then say, well, I couldn't do anything about this man because that would have endangered the other white women who are my community. And you, black girl in this case, that Harry, are not part of my community. The other women of color he was targeting are not part of my community. But in five minutes, I'm going to say we should all stand together as women, right? Mm-hmm. We, we tend to think of feminism as being for all women. In theory, in execution, what tends to happen and someone's gonna call me divisive for pointing this out again, white feminism will say to women of color, well, you should pick gender over race. Actually, what happens is that white feminism has already picked race over gender. They've picked white supremacy, and then Mm -hmm. they're gonna bolster it unless it harms them. They're perfectly willing to see it harm others and perfectly willing to say, well, you just have to put up with being harmed until it's convenient for me to help you fight, which comes the first day of never, right? Trickle down economics doesn't work, trickle down feminism doesn't work, trickle down whatever doesn't work, except maybe a soda cup, right? You can pour that soda and watch the the soda trickle down the ice. That's the only time that's got any kind of impact. What ended up happening was that I made the hashtag. Side note, it's actually a terrible hashtag. It's too long and a bunch of other things. (laughs) It's memorable, so it's not a terrible hashtag. (laughs) I mean, it's, it's a very effective one. What I had done basically was open a release valve. Seven million people used that hashtag. It trended for hours. And the reason it was so effective was because a lot of people felt that way, but they didn't necessarily feel safe saying they felt that way. Seeing other people also talk about the problem will make people feel like, oh, okay, it's not just me. Because again, people feel lonely in their oppression. And so even though I was eventually called divisive and told that I had ruined my career, ruined, (laughs) I was never going to be a writer. Fascinating. What I did was unite a lot of people who weren't middle-class white women and upper middle-class. And I won't say because someone's going to have a not all white women and okay, sure, fine. Fine. There's a 53% problem. And this, and it's not just 53% here as we've seen in other countries voting for white supremacy up until you realize the risk to you has been a strategy for a lot of mainstream middle-class white women. And so now we're seeing the consequences of not calling that out, of all of the focus being on, well, we need women of color to back us up. And when we get where we're going, we'll help you get here. So it was a criticism of a lot of things, including the idea that feminism's fight for equality was for the right to be equal to white men and the power that white men have to oppress others. Do you feel since that trended, and that was, was that 2014? I think it was 2013. 2013. Mm -hmm. Do you feel since that time there's been progress? 
I think there's been a little bit of progress. I feel like the shock in 2016 when the election results came in, when the numbers came in, was when people said, oh, they're not overreacting. Because I think before that, people were still kind of able to sometimes lie to themselves. And then it was like, oh, this is what you've been talking about all this time. Mm -hmm. We're in deep water. And I think things have shifted. We're talking about intersectionality. We're talking about inclusion and diversity in a different way. We're spending less time on the idea that diversity is majority white and a handful of color, and more on the idea that equity and inclusion are where we should be aiming, where everyone is able to access the pie, so to speak. You know, because before it seemed to be, well, there's only so much pie to give you. And now it's like, maybe we should make another pie. I'm not sure the pie is going to taste good. It might have raisins in it. But at least the concept is now entered the conversation. Do you think that white women are coming along with the idea of, not just the idea of intersectionality, but actually embracing it? I think some are. I would never ever, like we're going to nod all in the other direction. I would never say that racism isn't a factor because it obviously mm-hmm. is. And classism is a factor, and ableism and transphobia. And we have all of these other isms and phobias to, to talk about homophobia and these things. So I don't think it's, it's going to be an all white woman will suddenly wake up tomorrow and become enlightened feminists or even all white feminists will wake up tomorrow and become enlightened. I just mm-hmm. think that what is happening is that for some people, they're looking around and the wolf is at their door or close enough to their door that they're starting to figure out, hey, wait, me voting for race over my gender isn't actually working out for me. A lot of these conversations about reproductive rights that we're now having and attempts to roll back abortion rights and that kind of thing are happening as white women realize that white supremacy never actually cared about their agency or their equality. Do you think that's enough though? This is like top of mind for me right now because just last night, before we recorded this session, I recorded another episode that is airing this season with two women who are doing this thing called Race to Dinner. And they are two women of color, a Black woman and an East Asian Indian woman. I'm having very candid, kind of in-your-face conversations with white women about white supremacy. And specifically, it's like calling white women to the carpet on their complicit behavior Mm -hmm. around white supremacy and talking to them and and having them describe their experiences. It certainly sounds like at least anecdotally that the majority of women, white women in particular that they come in contact with around this issue have no interest in confronting white supremacy. Oh, I absolutely think that the first step in the confrontation conversation is just now happening And denial is the immediate knee-jerk response. Right. You will absolutely have white women who otherwise think that they are not racist, not homophobic, not transphobic, all of these things, right? That they are not a bigot because there's a certain level of fragility that is inbuilt into the system where they have blamed everything on the patriarchy and specifically on white men as though they have no agency of their own. But I think there's... For some of them, I'm not saying all of them, there comes a point after the knee-jerk denial and their feelings getting hurt where they look around and they go, wait, maybe, maybe I could do something. Maybe Uncle Joe, right? We're going to go with Uncle Joe at Thanksgiving. They've already said they're not racist. They would never tolerate racism, blah, blah, blah. And then they're home 
and Uncle Joe tells a joke and they look around and they start to laugh and then they realize, wait, that joke was racist, right? I think it's a process. I think unlearning white supremacy of a lifetime is not gonna happen at, the, at that initial dinner, maybe not after the first two or three times they've had to think about it. I think they have to have all of their feelings, preferably not at anyone of color. Preferably have your feelings, I don't know, in your closet, in your bathtub, whatever. Mm-hmm. And then they have to use logic. Now, some of them are going to stop at the feelings point and not go past. But I think others, right after the feelings, when they go into work, when they're talking to their spouse or their brother or their Uncle Joe, and they hear the things they were just told, confrontationally or not, this is not okay and here is why. They're going to have to kind of take a step back and ask, why does he think he can say that to me? Why does she think she can say those things? Why do I think this thing? Mm-hmm. You know, I've, I've seen, I've been having this side argument about after-school programs. And there was a very evangelical for charter schools person in my mentions. And apparently her child didn't have a great time in public school. And somehow we extrapolated that to mean that public school was the problem and not that that specific school was the problem. And when she started to go in about how public education was bad and blah, 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 I, I, I admit it, I did say that's mighty white of you. Right? Like you've... Okay you've got options and you feel like nobody else's things matter. And she was not happy with me. But later in the day, after her original, oh, you're so mean, she came back and was like, I didn't really know these things about charter schools and what they're doing in communities of color until I went to look it up to argue with you kind of thing. (laughs) And it was like, okay. And I don't know where that's going to go for her. Right, like maybe we're gonna have learned some things. I haven't gone back to finish looking at the conversation. But she wants to do the right thing. She thinks she's going to do the right thing. Hearing she wasn't doing the right thing is a difficult thing. Mm -hmm. And I think for a lot of people, unfortunately, and this is a generational march, not an immediate sprint to the end. This may well be the generation that has to look at the consequences Mm -hmm. of white supremacy in real time and not as a theoretical thing that someone else will have to deal with. That's interesting. I, God, I, I could talk to you about this forever and so many questions, but I, I want to, I'm going to switch gears really quick because I want to make sure we don't run out of time. And I want you to talk about hood feminism. Hood feminism is my next book coming out February 25th, 2020 from Viking and from Bloomsbury UK. It'll be available in the U S the UK and the Commonwealth, and no, I don't know how many places in the Commonwealth because I've just begun to understand what Commonwealth means. And in it, I talked about specifically this. I talk about feminism as a lived thing that has not always got the language down right, but it's something I grew up experiencing. There's a certain kind of working class, low income feminism that is more focused on taking care of the people than on the academic theory. In that book, I talk a lot about very mundane, in some ways, issues poverty, hunger, housing, missing and murdered indigenous women, missing and murdered black girls, and how these problems overlapped and they're kind of eclipsed because a missing white girl can get coverage for 20 years. Mm-hmm. But we may never see a news story about a missing black girl or a missing indigenous girl. Mm-hmm. And how these things happen because of white supremacy and how feminism sometimes consciously and sometimes unconsciously bolsters these things. Probably not gonna make a lot of people feel good, some people will like it. Some people will be will feel like they've been attacked. It's fine. You'll be okay. I promise. I talk in head feminism about the fact that I am not the feminist that makes you feel good. That's not my job. Mm-hmm. My job is to give you the facts. 
and to give you a way to have this conversation, this messy, angry, emotional conversation without necessarily making it about your feelings, sugarcoating it, all of that. And whether or not you like the conversation, the conversation has to happen because we can't keep saying we're a movement for all women and then only focusing on the needs and concerns of someone. What do you think is the next essential step that feminism needs to take at this moment in time? Feminism needs to shift its focus from leaning in to get a corporate job and this weird idea that equal pay is enough because equal pay for what jobs? It's great. Equal pay is there's nothing wrong with the concept of equal pay, but we still need to make sure everyone can get paid. Mm-hmm. And we also then need to make sure everyone has access to the opportunities. And I feel like too often feminism focuses on the middle and above and not on those people who are really at the bottom of the sort of oppression ladder and make, because rising tide lifts all boats. Mm -hmm. And if we were working from the bottom instead of the middle, we might be a lot further along. I think that's kind of, not kind of, I think that's definitely one of the next steps for feminism as a, as a whole is that it's got to stop being so focused on what a privileged middle-class person needs and more on what people without privilege need. Sure. I agree with that. I don't know how we get past this place where people seem to only care if it directly impacts them. I think part of that is going to have to be the yelly part. <laughs> the, co- the conflict, the confrontation. Right, right. Yeah. We can't keep avoiding the conflict. Mm-hmm. We have to have the fight. There's not a polite way or a nice way maybe to have the fight. Yeah. It seems to me, though, I think to your early point that specifically storytelling is, is maybe the key that unlocks the door. It being able to humanize that thing. I think that is exactly what we have to do. I think it's an uncomfortable thing to have to do. That we can say, for instance, well, the substance of my critique is X, Y, Z. And it sounds good, right? It's a very academic framing. But sometimes we have to say, the problem here is, and we have to bust it down to that plain language. I am worried about people being able to put food on the table, educate their kids and keep their kids and be safe. Mm -hmm. And that's where we have to start. Because if we're in a society where those things are happening, right, where people have everything they need, then sure, we can shoot for the stars. But we should probably make sure we have a solid foundation. Is there anybody out there that you can think of that is being especially impactful in finding avenues to break down these walls and doing this work? I think there are a lot of Tamara Manassi, who was with the Mothers Against Senseless Killings Project here in Chicago, Charlene Carruthers, who was a Black Youth Project, Dream Defenders, and I'm not going to tell you any of the activists I rattle off here are perfect or impossible to critique. I'm going to say that their focus has been on helping people who are at the bottom of this hill. Mona El-Tali, who talks a lot about hymens and headscarves and, and, and Islamofeminism and Islamophobia and this kind of thing, because sometimes you have to start in the house, right? One of the things I will also say here is that I'm seeing, unfortunately, unfortunately, a lot more women of color doing the work in the community for the community than I'm, than I'm necessarily seeing for a certain category of powerful white women. 
but I am seeing working class white women do a lot of work. And it's interesting to me in a, in a weird way because working class white women technically have the least access to education of white women, but they're the most interested in educating themselves because they're experiencing the same problems. Yeah, that's an interesting point. It's a good point. We're just about out of time, Mickey. So where can our listeners connect with you and also get the latest novel? So Amazon's Abolition and Activist is available right now on Amazon at any bookstore. It's basically wherever books are sold. I will be at Shrek Humanities Festival. I have an event at the School Art Institute Ballroom, Avalon Park Library on Monday. There's a mini book tour for this, and then there'll be another book tour for Hood Feminism. So I will probably be coming to a city near you in the near future. Well, I'm excited for Hood Feminism. Definitely want to get my hands on that when it's available. Where on social should people connect with you to follow? You can find me. It's Carnethia. Some of you are going to come up with a completely different pronunciation. (laughs) On Twitter, K-A-R-N-Y-T-H-I-A. And actually, that's generally my name on social media because nobody else is named Carnethia except me. Oh, cool. You got, you cornered the market on Carnethia then. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. Mickey, it was a pleasure having you and just learning more about your work and what you have coming down the pipeline and just your, your thoughts as a social commentator, diversity consultant, hashtag badass. (laughs) I'm so thankful to have had you join us for season four of the show. Thank you for having me on. This was a lot of fun. Wonderful. I'm glad you enjoyed it, folks. Make sure you connect with Mickey. Remember, she goes by Carnethia on the internet. Check out her latest book, Amazon's Abolitionist and Activist, and keep an eye out for Hood Feminism coming soon. Hopefully, we can all get our hands on it. February 25th, 2020. Coming up, February 25th, 2020, we will connect to all the places in the show notes as we normally do. Make it happen, you guys. You guys are awesome. Go out, be great. Thanks for joining us. And until next time, we out. <laughs>